Welcome to Navigate, the podcast that helps you safely and securely traverse the globe. Alongside travel industry experts and global travelers, we'll gather insights and advice that help you manage any pitfalls or problems that may occur while you're away from home. Our voyage of discovery starts now. Hi, and welcome to the Navigate podcast. I'm your host, Claire Johnson, and today we're flipping the script on one of our regular podcast hosts, Roger Cook. He's the general manager of global security services for World Travel Protection, and will be the one who's getting interviewed in this episode. As we're starting to see vaccine programs rolling out across the world, we wanted to focus today's episode on what that means for international travel. While most commentators still look towards 2022 before we start to see any real movement, there is a possibility that travel bubbles will appear and countries will start to put in place programs that allow for greater freedom of movement before then. So today we're going to discuss what international travel might look like. In particular, some of the potential security implications travelers need to consider before they step back onto the plane. We'll also discuss how the policing of COVID restrictions in certain countries have impacted global security and how local laws have impacted human rights and marginalized groups. Roger, thanks for joining me today. No worries, Clay. My pleasure. We've seen over the last 12 months that every country has had a different COVID journey, and we're continuing to see those different responses in relation to their vaccine programs. What impact have these approaches had and what will it mean for these countries opening up to tourists and business travelers? Yeah, look, you know, in theory, governments have made their decisions, their medical decisions based on the best available medical advice. You know, and we've seen this vary between country to country, even even between states in, in a country. And you're trying to get medical professionals to agree and then also politicians to buy in um, has been interesting at times. You know, the, the decisions being made and the new laws being put in place are obviously aimed at controlling the spread, uh, eliminating the virus or, or taking some pressure off the medical infrastructure. It was, it was this medical advice that, again, will dictate how we start to travel and how countries start to open up and who we actually open up to. I mean, you talked about those bubbles before. As you said in your intro, you know, every country has had its own unique journey. And the decision to open up borders won't be taken lightly. There'll be a lot of obviously medical advice, but also political implications in these. Border control has been a great tool to stop the spread of, of COVID. And we've seen recently where the UK has put in a hotel quarantine for people coming from certain destinations. And obviously where it has been in place, um, it's had a great impact on, on, on doing this. It's a proven measure and it works. It's been criticised, obviously, from the, the economic impact of closing borders, but in the long run, they have proven to work. For borders to open fully, it will take an agreed approach between two governments, their health advisors, and the appetite of the community to be able to bring in foreigners again. Obviously, the efficacy of the vaccines will be critical, and you know, with this happening, you know, and then the vaccine programs coming along very quickly, we might see it speed up for 2021. But there'll need to be some appetite for risk. Um, we don't really see that appetite at the moment. It's going to come down to really how the vaccines come into play. And obviously, as the first lot of tourists enter a region, it's going to be a, a different country for them. And they'll be received maybe with some suspicion initially, uh, but they'll definitely become targets for, in some jurisdictions uh, from criminal groups. You mentioned how countries have made decisions based off of their local medical advice and politics. So of these decisions that have turned into laws and regulations, how have they impacted the community? And then maybe how can we see them applied on a more global scale? 
Yeah, it's a good question. And it goes back to everyone having a unique or every country having a unique journey. But we've, we've seen laws implemented to manage how we congregate, uh, what activities we can do, you know, how many people we can have at a wedding or a funeral, you know, what protective clothing we must wear, what we can purchase at shops. You know, so there's been limits at one stage on, on flour and pasta and you know, toilet paper of all things. And, and obviously how we move around our cities, you know, public transport and you know, even to the point of closing cities down completely in lockdowns. You know, governments put these measures in place to promote and support recovery and a return to normal living and working conditions, which is the ultimate aim. The laws have been put in place to protect at-risk populations and also provide that roadmap you know, for economic recovery. In some jurisdictions, though, we've seen laws policed with violence and we've seen laws taken to further uh, or used further to target minority groups in the continuation of that sort of policing. You know, Amnesty International has reported a, a variety of police actions which would be considered to be at the very least human rights violations, but also there's incidents of murder and physical assaults caused by security forces implementing COVID controls. So under the auspices of, of COVID controls, we've seen an overreaction or a heavy-handedness from police forces across the world. You know, many states have used the pandemic as a pretext to introduce laws and policies that violate international law and really do roll back human rights guarantees. Unduly restricting the rights of freedom of, of peaceful assembly and the freedom of expression is, is a basic human right. Now, during a pandemic, having a mass protest, you know, a lot of people consider it to be foolish. But when a temporary law restricting human rights becomes permanent or is policed in a way that it's permanent, this will have a major impact on some of the populations already experiencing discrimination. Throughout the response to COVID, you know, there have been accusations of police using COVID to target marginalised populations like the Romani people and other minorities in Europe. It's expected that when travel does start to open up, this level of control is likely to continue. You know, anything that will impact the, the economic return is going to be seen as a detriment and it will be heavily policed. It may even become more stringent on these segments of society as they've seen to be posing a risk of respreading the virus. As we know, a full economic recovery can't be met unless we do start to open up our borders. And when we start to see tourists and international students return, um, as an example, and any groups that are perceived to be in a position that may put this at risk um, will continue to be targeted by the police. If this higher level of control is likely to continue even after borders open, mm -hmm. what does this mean for the traveller coming in? And are they going to be expected to adapt and, and comply with new laws? I think for the first sort of... You know, groups of travellers that start to get out there, they're going to feel a little bit like pioneers. They may be going to countries that they've been to before, but this country is going to look slightly different and they will need to understand not only the culture, we'll talk a little bit about culture, that they're going to from a from a you know inherent cultural perspective, but also the, the new sort of change of the COVID culture. You know, when travel does start to open up, we can expect that there's going to be a raft of new laws that will apply to the traveller. There's going to be certain requirements that we're going to need before we even jump on a plane to travel to these destinations. And as usual, your ignorance is not an excuse and travellers are going to be, need to be aware. Yeah, airlines are going to play a critical part in this. They'll make sure that we meet entry requirements on prior to departure. We may need to have a vaccine passport. There's, there's, there's some people for that. There's some countries for that. Provide a negative test. So there's a lot of work being done on, on fast turnaround tests that you can take at the airport. Declaring any recent travel before you can board. All these sorts of things are going to have to come into play. And obviously the airlines are going to have to make decisions on really complex cases. So this is pre-departure before we even start to step into a country. But even with you know, these clear guidelines in place, it's common for airlines to interpret requirements differently. So you might 
arrive at the airport thinking you're free to travel and the the airline might actually see it differently. So there's going to have to be a lot of, um, at least in the early days, there will be some trepidation around around travel and um, actually getting on that plane. In some jurisdictions, we can see different application of entry requirements between customs officials as well. And, you know, we know that restrictions can change without notice and it's possible that as a traveller, you know, we can leave home and mid-flight the requirements for entry have evolved. So at the border when we arrive in country, now, this is the control points are going to be really critical. And I expect that we'll see an extra layer of control as well, you know, medical testing and, and, and reviews um, also at, at the sort of point of entry. You know, if you're traveling multiple destinations, this will simply add to the confusion. Uh, there's likely to be an extra layer of medical clearance I spoke about. And if you've been to multiple countries, that will definitely add to the decision making that, that needs to be taken at that point. So it's really important that if we, we are traveling to multiple countries that we understand the requirements from the countries that we've been to, even if we just transited through. You know, once through the border control and into the community, it's not enough to understand the letter of the law, but also how that law is applied and in the intent of the law, which can sometimes be different to how it's really delivered and sometimes is referred to as the spirit of the law. And a lot of that's going to come down to you know, how, how that country's COVID journey has been as well. That spirit of the law concept, if it's different from the letter in the law or what you might find in your pre-travel research, how would people coming into a place know there's a difference? Can you dive into that a bit more for us? Yeah, you know, the the, the intent of writing a law is that it's fairly black and white. You know, a law is written, uh, it's policed a certain way, but in, in reality, in a lot of jurisdictions, those laws will be policed you know, really underneath you know, the police's guys and how they observe and how they feel about policing on the time and also how that community reacts um, to the law or the intent of the law. You know, the spirit of the law is likely to be impacted by, by what social scientists are calling COVID culture. You know, the impact of COVID on the general population can vary from state to state and even parts of a city. You know, how, how we manage it as a community and the changes we made to our day-to-day life and, and the way we experience loss during COVID we impact how uh, COVID is policed, not only by, you know, the, the security forces, but also by the community themselves. You know, if you, even now, if you, you go into a shop and somebody isn't socially distancing, there's a little bit of unease. You can feel it in the room sort of thing. So you take that to jurisdictions who have had a really tough COVID journey and the way that they handle travellers when they come in is going to be a little bit different, I think. The countries that have had that major impact are less inclined to forgive a traveller you know, if they are slow to adapt to local requirements or if they are slow to understand the local COVID customs. And really it's that COVID culture plus the inherent culture and the, the COVID journey that the traveller is going to have to understand. You know, in jurisdictions where policing functions are disciplined and, and the rule of law is applied, this is very, it's likely to have very little impact. But, you know, if, if the traveller understands the laws and they're quick to adjust the culture, in countries where policing is, is often less disciplined, uh, we're likely to see the law applied at the discretion of the officer on the ground, which which can be complex. Do you have any examples of that? You know, where the officer is interpreting the law or applying it in a not so black and white sense, or is that more of a prediction? No, we have seen examples. You know, I gave the the quite drastic examples of Amnesty International and how the laws have been applied from through their eyes and, and some of the human rights abuses and, and, and other things there. But, you know, closer to Australia, we, we've seen in Asia that, you know, one of the very popular tourist destinations that Australians like to go uh, in Bali, you know, we've seen local police force making tourists pay a small fine. You know, if they're not wearing a mask, for example, they're, they're asked to pay a small fine and do push-ups 
uh, as a punishment for breaching the, the, the local COVID restrictions. So we, we have seen that. And I, I doubt that that fine is going anywhere near the actual government coffers. So I, I suspect that that's being pocketed by the police force. Yeah, that doesn't sound too official. What do you think are the ramifications of this sort of thing? It goes back again. It's, it depends on the jurisdiction, but we, you know we're likely to see corrupt police forces take advantage of COVID restrictions. Um, we're going to see them elicit bribes from travellers. They, they're going to you know really benefit from 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 confusion around the laws. They're going to benefit from a, again the the understanding of the community or not uh, around the travellers' breaches. So you know a, a traveller might be pulled up with a perceived breach of COVID. Within the, with the absolute intent of the police to try and eke out some you know, monetary benefit, so you know basically a, a corrupt activity. You know, we, we're likely to see that, like we are seeing, and I'm in that case or example I just gave. You know, we we will see them assert control and target marginalised members of the community. And the application of the rule of law or the letter of law will be done through the prism of COVID culture, and the police force's appetite for corruption and, and the tolerance of the community. You know, to, to use that example with, with Bali, I suspect that the police are also getting locals to do push-ups or pay a fine as well. I don't think that's necessarily just focused on the tourists, but I think there's a real risk that tourists and other marginalised people will be targeted underneath COVID restrictions. Now, when travel does start to open up, local police control is, is likely to become more stringent in the belief that certain segments of society pose a risk of re- reintroducing, like I touched on before, and that's going to have... Yeah, a negative impact on, on on recovery. So the policing of these marginal groups or these these groups who are perceived to be a, a risk is going to increase. And anyone, whether you're a tourist who might be travelling to those regions or areas, you may identify this, you may be aware of this, but particularly if you're a business traveller and you're working in the NGO sector or you're working in, in media and you're reporting on these things, it's very likely that you'll see incidents of, of police targeting these groups. You know, clearly with, with when travel starts back, you know, it's a, it's a better economic outlook and there'll be pressure to make sure that it stays open. Uh, any travellers, any segment of society or issue-motivated groups that will have a, a perceived impact on the health of the community will be the focus for security forces. As you mentioned and have alluded to a couple times, the, the police force is playing a key role in enforcing these new rules in lockdowns. Mm. Have these new responsibilities been a drain on resources I mean, their bandwidth is finite. So has this COVID policing come at a cost somewhere else? Yes, it's a, it's a tough question. And again, you know, really sort of country specific. But I guess if we look at the most impactful end of the spectrum and when we focus a little bit on, 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 on terrorism as an example, you know, in mid-January we saw, we witnessed a suicide bombing in Baghdad. And, you know, it's, it's a familiar story for this part of the world. Unfortunately, it's... Um, it's, it's something that they, for many years, have grown accustomed to. But what's significant was that these two explosions, which, which killed 32 people, was that Islamic State claimed responsibility. And what that means is, you know, Islamic State was supposedly beaten, apart from a few splinter cells that remained way back in 2017. But these sorts of attacks, that helps to embolden their supporters. It helps from a propaganda perspective. It helps to recruit people. And during the pandemic... We've seen people forced away out of the mosques, back into the homes and online. Mm-hmm. Now, this removes those people who are at a potential for being radicalised. It removes them from the moderates that they have access to. It removes mm-hmm. them from the soft policing, the community-type policing that they're used to or that is employed to try and, and target 
these people who are, you know, potential for radicalization. So when we see these attacks, which, which lead and feed into the propaganda machine, and then during the pandemic, police resources that had been re- redirected from community policing, which, which helped to mitigate the risk, you know, we don't see that policing. Instead, we see the other side and you know, we start to see heavy handed policing of these same groups. So, you know, the community policing actions is limited uh, by the need to be socially distanced. And the programs that are established to help identify and reach out to at-risk individuals have, have definitely been shut down. So the softer side of policing is gone. Mm-hmm. Now, the, the at-risk young people who are now being heavily policed in the name of the pandemic, they're forced indoors, online. Social monitoring and, and access to monitors removed, as I said, and there's a real risk of radicalisation and obviously the potential for further attacks, particularly in Europe and Africa. Now, police forces continue to work at managing the online radicalisation but what we've seen during this pandemic is a lot more of the nefarious activities that occur thrive in the online environment. Mm. You know, we, we have terrorism in one area and then we also have to talk online is cybercrime. And we've seen reports the cybercrime has increased 90% during the pandemic, which is, which is crazy sort of numbers. But this comes out of uh, Crow UK, one of the leaders in, in, in fraud resilience and fraud awareness programs. So those cyber criminals really do take advantage of the redirection of resources. They also take advantage of confusion and, and we've seen that clearly and that will continue, continue to be an issue and it will definitely target the travellers when they do start up again. Now, for my last question, if we start to see travel begin towards the end of this year and early into 2022, what is a key piece of information you'd want to share with those first travellers setting back out? Look, I think understanding the risk of a depressed economy. So we know that when economic conditions are poor, we see an increase in theft, robberies, corruption, fraud, cybercrime, you know, all, all these things that will have an impact on a traveller. You know, cybercrime and fraud now make up 50% of all crime. So it's, it's been a huge change. So we need to understand as a traveller, we may have gone to this destination numerous times before, but what journey have they been through from a COVID perspective? What impact has that had on the economy? What impact has that had on the populace? Now, we've seen and will continue to see a surge in cybercrime. You know, we'll see tar- you know, them target travellers with fake health alerts and advice and, you know, trying to get personal data. So we need to be careful with what personal information we provide and on what system it's on. Cybercriminals will produce websites, messages and emails that look really official, requesting personal information, but make sure... You know, if you ever ask that you confirm that it's legitimate. Where travellers may have felt comfortable travelling to a colourful destination, and, and you know, colourful destinations are great. You know, we, we look at you know Mexico, the you know, Latin America, the Golden Triangle, which the North Americans like to like to call it down there, and you know, parts of Africa and, and Asia. You know, these are great destinations. And, and in the past, we may have been a little more aware of our surroundings. We may, you know, because we are going to a colourful destination, we just going to have to be more alert now. Now, if you've been there before, really try and look for changes in the way people react to your presence. You know, are there more people standing around touting for your patronage than usual? Is it more aggressive? You know, are the taxi drivers becoming more aggressive? Are the, are the people in the shops being more aggressive, clearly trying to get your business? If you are travelling to a tourist centre, keep an eye out for people loitering and, and be cognizant of what you leave in your hotel room. You know, we, we like to trust that we can leave things in our hotel room and, you know, hotel safes just aren't safe. So be cognizant of what you take on your travels and what you leave. Now, before economies start to recover and tourism is back to its previous levels, it's likely that people who are working are the sole breadwinners. And, you know, for the last 12 months have really been accumulating debt. So before you might have felt safe leaving valuables in your room, 
may no longer be able to do so. You know, in the rest, in the in the in the end, the risks to the traveller are the same. They may be more impacted by the economic impact of COVID um, on that country they're travelling to. I mean, it's just enough to make slight adjustments and increase the level of awareness to provide yourself a little bit more protection when we travel. Well, that's all for this episode of Navigate. Roger Cook is the general manager of Global Security Services for World Travel Protection. Roger, thanks for your time and for sitting down with us today. No worries, Claire. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to this episode of Navigate, the World Travel Protection podcast that steers you in the right direction, helping you explore the world safely. For more information on how we protect millions of global travellers each year, visit worldtravelprotection.com or follow us on LinkedIn. We'd love to connect. Finally, if you've enjoyed this episode and you want to hear more from my experts, be sure to hit subscribe or follow or please leave us a review. Until next time, keep travelling and stay safe.